Well, good morning, team. It's uh, just great to be back. <laughs> Missed you guys. Uh, and the last fortnight or so has been extraordinary, hasn't it? And I just know that you're in for the most extraordinary future, uh, one that, uh, that Montez will lead you into. And there's a real sense of, of uh, his an him being anointed. Uh, and he's going to take you and grow you uh, and this church into the future in a way that I cannot. And I'm excited by that. I really am. Thought I'd better just touch a little on the same-sex marriage postal vote. Uh, uh, it is be appropriate for me to just say something about that. Very tragically, the institutional church was divided in the debate, uh, which is not unusual, and gave no clear lead and it's become riddled with deism rather than Christianity and shamed into silence by the uh, sex abuse cases going on within its institutions. And therefore, sadly, it has given up the right and even the ability to be a prophetic voice to the nation. It's sad, isn't it? Uh, and most people, most Australians have to say love it that way. Uh, and, and the true danger of this is that God will not stand in the way of someone who's determined to go against his principles. God will not stand in the way of that. Uh, he's allowed us to choose. And generally now, uh, Australians don't like the idea of church uh, or even God. And uh, claiming to be rationalists, uh, they would rather not think of why the universe exists or explore the Jesus of history. Rather, cramps their lifestyle choices of unalloyed, unalloyed hedonism and self-obsession, bowing to nothing other than their mobile phone. No one is going to tell them how to behave. They are their own gods. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, you know, Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus talks about there being a narrow gate and a wide gate. And he says most people are going to go through the wide gate, the easy gate. Uh, unfortunately, it leads to destruction. It's not a good choice. Go through the narrow gate. And I have to say, it's, it's ever been thus. In the, you just, just read the Bible and you see that God's people have always been the remnant, have always been the, ah, Lord, we're just feeling overwhelmed. And God says, I know, but you are my prophetic voice to the nation at this time. I choose you for this point in history to hold the Christ-like candle high. So what can we do in response? Well, simply do that. Be a prophetic voice of God to those around you by your words of truth and your actions, your acts of grace. Be the hope and truth of God in our age. Okay? Thumbs up? Give me some thumbs. Cool. Lovely. Terrific. For those who don't know, we're going through the Beatitudes. Uh, these are the most extraordinary color culture uh, statements of Jesus. And uh, there's a, a bit of a parallel, actually, between what Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes and what he teaches in the Lord's Prayer. And as these two things, the most profound teachings that Jesus gave, the principles in them really do reflect the heart and character of God. And they give a, a real insight into the person 
of, of God. And, and, what, and what he aches for us, his people, to discover the truth of and the freedom of and the power of. And the uh, fifth one, the fifth beatitude was this. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It seems such a simple phrase, doesn't it? At one point in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam, remember Sam? Uh, he's disdainful towards the treacherous Gollum. However, Frodo intercedes for Gollum and treats him kindly. He, he calls him by his proper name, Smeagol, uh, the name he had before he became corrupted. And, and in befriending uh, and trusting Gollum, Frodo, Frodo uh, seeks to encourage him to be the person he knows he can be. He shows Gollum mercy. And the challenge for us, dear friends, is to be merciful to the Gollums that God puts across our path. This doesn't mean being unwise, by the way. <laughs> True mercy never contradicts God's truth and justice. Um, it means calling people to account so that they are the best that they can be and are not self-destructing. But to being merciful, what, what, what is it exactly? It's, it's, when you think about it, it's almost the same as kindness, but it's not quite. The particular nuance given by mercy is that it speaks of kindness from someone who has the right and the power to exact retribution. So you have the right to visit a nasty consequence on someone, but you choose instead to show mercy. And mercy, like forgiveness, is very, very powerful indeed. It has the power to end quarrels rather than to foment the cycle of hatred and retribution. Do you remember, do you remember the parable that Jesus told in, in um, Matthew 18? Uh, and Jesus said, yeah, there, was, there was once a bloke who owed the king about a billion bucks, billion dollars, which is a lot of money. And... Uh, as was the habit in those days, if you couldn't pay up, everything you had was, was taken and your family was sold into slavery. Get that. How would you like that, to be sold into slavery because dad couldn't pay the king a billion bucks? And so he, he visits the king and he falls down on his knees and he pleads for mercy and the king's moved with compassion and forgives the debt. And then this guy goes outside and there's a bloke who owes him two bucks. And he grabs this guy by the neck and says, give him my two bucks. And he says, I haven't got two bucks. And so he has him thrown into prison. And news of this reaches the king, and the king is understandably grumpy. And says, how come you, you didn't forgive a debt of two bucks when I forgave you a debt of a million bucks? Be merciful. And so he had the other guy chucked into prison. So that was just a story that Jesus told, and he's told it because he wanted us to catch hold of, of an essential characteristic of God. 
which is to look on us with mercy and to give us his spirit so that we too look on others with mercy. When God has forgiven us so much, who are we to withhold mercy? And that's why God says, you know, why do you judge? Romans 14, why do you judge? That's not your prerogative. Who are you to judge? James 4.12. And so Jesus tells this extraordinary story in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans sort of corrupt, were a corrupt version of Judaism that developed while most of the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And they sort of joined a bit of Judaism with the local gods and they'd mess things around and they'd change things. So when the Jews came back, they were sort of fighting with the Samaritans. They'd hated each other for a long while. In the best tradition of humankind. And he tells a story. He says, there was this hateful Samaritan, you know, who was beaten up by robbers and on a journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jericho was the... Um, Hindley Street of, of Palestine. <laughs> it was where you went to have um, to behave badly. And he was going down there, perhaps to behave badly. And he's beaten up by robbers. Um, then a priest walks by. It doesn't bother to help this, this guy who's wounded beside the road. And then a, uh, a Levite, uh, that's a sort of a priestly assistant in the temple, walks past and ignores the guy. Oh, what am I talking about? It wasn't a Samaritan. It was uh, a guy from Jerusalem, presumably, went down uh, to... And then a Samaritan turned up. I'll get it right in a minute. Then a Samaritan turned up, a despised Samaritan. And a Samaritan gets off his donkey and sees this Jew that should be despising. And instead he binds up his wounds, lifts him onto his donkey, takes him to an inn and tells the innkeeper to care for him. And, and he leaves money for him to be... cared for and Jesus tells that story he says guys will you be like that what would the Christian church look like if we had a reputation for that what would the Christian church look like if, if it was a place of incredible love incredible truth what if we became as we we always want to be at Rivergate, don't we? I mean, Rivergate's a place you come to when, when you're just about to give up on the idea of church or anywhere else. I mean, Rivergate is a rescue station for the broken and lonely, isn't it? Yeah? Which is the reason why we're here. <laughs> the only qualification you need for turning up to Rivergate is you've got to be busted in some form or other. Um, because what we say here is we point to the incredible love and acceptance of God who will not be without you, who, who died on a cross to take the blame for all the wretched stuff in our life that would otherwise keep us from him. He says, I have paid the price. You are precious. You are sacred. You are worth me dying for. And so Jesus says, will you show mercy? And in, in, in um, Matthew 25, he says, you know, will you say Will you show mercy to those who are hungry, to the thirsty, to the naked, to the imprisoned, to those who are just plain lonely? And loneliness has got to be the most rife condition in our society. Will you get up from the chair? <laughs> As dear old Johan says, dear, will you get up from the chair and will you make friends with that person sitting on their own? 
have to say one of the people who does this better than anyone else I know is Morag. And Morag, I'm not sure we're going to let you go. So where are you? Oh, she's gone. She's teaching people. So let's conspire to keep her here. You know? She's really good at that. She'll be back. All right. And Jesus says, look, if, if, you, if you give a drink to the thirsty, dress the naked, visit those in prison, say good day to those who are plain lane, or even just give a cup of water to someone, you will have your reward. You are showing mercy. And he says, the consequence of that, the consequence of that, because all of us in Australia suffer from a fairly poor self-esteem. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> <laughs> if you're not a rampant narcissist, you, you, sometimes the self-esteem takes a bit of a battering. And God says, if you show my characteristic of mercy, this, this you can absolutely know, that God's mercy will be shown to you. That will address that poor self-esteem. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Yes? Thumbs up? A few, a few thumbs. That's good. Which brings us to the second beatitude, because you're getting two, because of Montaz. And this is actually very appropriate, because in, in the light of the sexuality debate. Because one of the questions that was not discussed was, is the proposed form of sexuality good? Does it reflect good relationships? In families? Does it reflect good health? Does it reflect good education for children? Does it reflect good habits we want to see in society? Is it good for procreation? That question was never discussed. And the sixth beatitude is simply this Blessed are the pure, the pure in heart. Because Jesus says, if you are pure in heart, then this is God's promise to you. You will see God in a way that others cannot. You will see God. You will see God. Isn't that amazing? People say, I believe in God. If I could see him, try a bit of purity in your life. See where that gets you. <laughs> but here's an announcement from the... Um, the BBC World Service. I'll say the BBC World Service because Helen is with us. <laughs> Owing to lack of interest, uh, the concept of purity has been abandoned. It has now been seen to be altogether too quaint, too redolent of virginal chastity, too suggestive of religious orders and outmoded ideals of the Knights of the Round Table. There is simply no place for purity in our hard-edged world of pointed metal bras, relative truth, and the current moral vacuum in which absolute truth has been dissolved in the acids of modern thinking. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? <laughs> Enjoyed writing it. You can tell I'm a writer, can't you? Purity. Purity is a godlike quality, and it takes real courage to possess it. Um, I'm going to say something incredibly profound. You've got to try not to laugh. Because I'm going to tell you what purity is. Purity is the absence of impurity. <laughs> I didn't get a high mark from you, did it, really, in terms of... No. Nah. Okay. 
But it's actually quite profound. Because the reality is, is that our sin and imperfection hangs like a veil between us and God. Isaiah 59.2, which is one of our memory verses, by the way, in, in Rivergate, says this, But your iniquities, that's, that's the, the, your sin, the, the, the bad thinking you do, the bad actions you do, the bad stuff you say, all, all those iniquities have separated you from your God. That's what it says. Distance, because God is holy. can't have anything to do with sinfulness. So you've been separated by all these impurities. And of course, the Christian gospel is that Jesus then comes and he takes the blame for those impurities and makes the way back to God, available to us if we choose that. And that is the scandal and beauty and, and, and incredible good news of the Christian gospel. And so there's a sense in which the impurities stand like a veil between us and God. So we can't see God. But if you're pure, you can. Because it's not there. There's actually an unbreakable link between purity and obedience, by the way. In John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands, you know, whoever knows the values and principles which make life best, which I have given you, which, for, which will cause you to thrive, which I have given you in love and grace, whoever has that and who shows and obeys them, then he's the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him. And guess what? I will show myself to them. So there, Jesus is saying the same thing, isn't he? He's saying, look, if, if you obey, if you are pure and, and do the extraordinary counterculture, God-like stuff, I'll show myself to you. Or you will see God. And that's the promise. And I love that because, you know, you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. Uh, the Jews tried it several times in the Old Testament. I try it several times, to be honest. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 1, um, Isaiah, a grumpy Old Testament prophet, uh, really has a go at the Jewish society and says, basically, you hypocrites, you know, who has asked you to trample around in my temple courts, offering all these sacrifices. They are meaningless. Just imagine Jesus saying that to you when you've been busy doing all that stuff in the temple week by week. He says they're meaningless. Because it's just an outward show of religion. You are not fundamentally changed within you. You are not pure. Be transformed. Come back to me and repent. Wipe away these sins so they become white as snow. Let's deal with this sin issue right at the heart and get you transformed so you really are pure. Make great reading. Ever, ever, ever see a rampant, grumpy Old Testament prophet? You want to read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 18. And he's unimpressed with mere religious 
religiosity. And I have to say that purity is something that's pretty hard. It's something that adolescents, particularly young men, struggle with. It caused King David to pray after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, Create in me a pure heart, O Lord. Psalm 51 verse 10. And later on in Psalm 119, the psalm writer asked the question, How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 verse 9. How can he keep his way pure? And then he goes on to say, Your word I, I've stored in my heart that I will not sin against you. An apprentice was watching a master silversmith scoop the dross off the surface of a beaker of molten silver. And he's scraping the dross at the, the fire had heated the dross to the surface and he's scraping the dross off. And then, then he heats it again and he scrapes the, the dross, the scum, the impurities off the top. And he heats it again and does it over and over again. And the apprentice silversmith says to the master, how do you know when the silver is refined and ready for use? And the master silversmith says, when I can see my face in the molten silver, it is ready to use. And so when people look at you and they see the face of your master, Jesus, when people look at you and they see the love, the compassion, the integrity of Jesus in you, And you're pure. It's nice, isn't it? And dear friends, the challenge this morning, as, as, as God invites us to have a look in his heart and, and sees the values that define the God of the universe that flung stars into space, he says, will you be like me? Will you be pure? Because this I promise you, If you sort out the bad stuff and confess it so it gets out of the way and you commit yourself to me seeking to be pure, you will see me in a way you have never seen me before. And that is my promise to you, says Jesus. Well, guys, I want to go after that, I reckon. Want to join me? <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Lord, it's good to hang out in your presence and just feel your presence here by your Holy Spirit to, to dance amongst your, the words that you've given us, to uh, allow their truth to change us, challenge us, delight us, grow us. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you for who you are. Thank you for calling us on a very special God-like path. We have no merit of our own to walk that path. And we feel, freely, freely know that. It's, it's purely by what you've done. 
So we can't claim to be better than anyone else and we don't. But Lord gee, we want to say thank you for making those promises to us. Thank you for giving us a hunger to seek you out. This extraordinary hope that you've given us that we're no, not just a cosmic random accident that somehow come from nothing as a result of nothing but somehow we have purpose and that purpose is to live in you for eternity and so Lord we ask your Holy Spirit's help to prompt us to be the radical type of people able to hold your light high to be pure and we pray this in Jesus name Amen